Well, we're going to be uh, looking at John 18. We're going to, uh, we've been going a bit slowly through John chapter 17 due to the nature of the discourse there, but chapter 18, we're going to cover a bit more ground today, and I will read from verse 1 to 18 and then skip to verse 25 to 27 today. Uh, and then just a note, I'll be away next week uh, at a young adults uh, conference in Sumas. If you wish to pray for for the conference, we would appreciate that. Several from our own church are going, uh, and it looks to be a, a great time to minister to some young adults. And then the following week, I'm in Colorado for a, a conference there, and then that should be it for the rest of the year, thankfully. Um, so then after that, Lord willing, I'll pick back up in John chapter 18. So verse 1 through to verse 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now, verse 25, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Well, let us pray for God's blessing upon the words that have been read. Our Father, these words are words of eternal life, and we pray they may be so to each person here from youngest to oldest, that we may know the truth and the truth will set us free. 
the truth that leads to Christ and from Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Oh, where did my, there it is. Well, one of the uh, striking elements of Christ's earthly ministry is how he is in complete and total control of every situation he finds himself in. From the beginning, when he is being tempted in the wilderness by the devil, he is in control. He has God's word in which to fight back against the temptations of the devil. When there are problems such as the need to feed the thousands of people on the plain and there are only a few loaves and fish, he is in complete control of the situation. When the boat is caught in a storm, he is the one who is sleeping because he does not need to worry. When you have Martha and Mary and they are distraught over the death of Lazarus and say to him, if you were here, my brother Lazarus would not have died. Jesus was again in total control of the situation. Whether there were healings, whether there were demons, whether there was Satan himself, whatever the situation was, whether it was religious leaders who were seeking to trick him with their questions, there's never a time where you get the sense that Jesus has lost control of a situation. Imagine how it must have been to walk with him and see that at every turn he has an appropriate answer. For every problem there is a miracle. And yet, here he is in the garden. And it appears on the surface, at least to his disciples who lack faith, that Jesus has somehow lost control. And yet John is giving us enough details here to assure us that in a certain sense, Christ was never more in control than when it appeared he was losing control. So, after he had spoken these words in verse 1, probably a reference to his prayer in John 17, but we have to also remember that he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed three times, remove this cup, and being aware that the cup would not be removed, notice then how the situation unfolds. He goes with his disciples across the brook Kidron, and there is a garden which he and his disciples entered, and this is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, he obviously did this many times because Judas was aware of this, and you see that in verse 2. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, the betrayal has already happened. This is now just the uh, fleshing out of the betrayal. He knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So what does Judas do? Judas procures a band of soldiers. These would be Roman soldiers. These are Gentiles. And some officers from the chief priests. So, some Jews. You have Jews, and you have Gentiles, and you have a former disciple. And the Pharisees. You have religious leaders. And what have they come with? They've come with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now Jesus knows 
that all of this is going to happen to him. He is not surprised by this. He's not in the garden and thinking, well, what shall we do tonight? He knows his hour has come. We've been told Jesus, knowing that his hour has arrived, has committed everything into the hands of the Father. And so he knows all that would happen to him. He is in total control of the situation and come forward and said to them, Notice the action is upon what Jesus does to them. He's not some helpless bystander. He's not running for his life. He's not hiding. They come, but we're told Jesus comes to them. Whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. They are confessing on their lips the name of the Lord of glory. They are confessing on their lips the eternal Son of God who has become flesh. They are confessing on their lips one who went about doing good and healing people of all their illnesses. They are confessing on their lips the one who would be raised from the dead. They are confessing on their lips the one who will come again to judge every single human being who has ever lived. Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am He. There are three references you will see to I am He in this discourse. Now Judas, again, who betrayed Him, was standing with them. You notice there's so much emphasis on little details. And this is to show you that John was present. He doesn't name himself, but he is present. And he is giving you all of these details because this is eyewitness account of what happened. When Jesus said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now this is a detail you cannot skip over too quickly because it is exceedingly important to what John is trying to convey to his readers and hearers. You remember the movie, The Passion of Christ? Probably many of you didn't see it, to which I would say, don't waste your time. Some of you may have seen it. I remember uh, in my early days as a weak Christian with my wife going to see this at the movie theater in Windsor, Ontario. What else does one do in Windsor, Ontario? I don't know. Gamble or go watch The Passion. I chose The Passion. And there were a movie crew outside interviewing people to say, well, you know, why are they coming to watch this movie? And I made sure to get my interview. You know me, right? I muscled my way in there and, uh, yes, over here, bit of a Bible scholar in your midst. I knew nothing, but... Uh, and they said, well, why do you want to watch the movie? And my answer was, I want to find out how faithful they are to the biblical account. And there is a scene in the movie where this precise... Uh, shall we say, uh, arrest happens and Jesus says to the Roman soldiers and to those who are there, I am He. And it's amazing to me that for dramatic effect, they didn't actually put that in the movie. Them all falling back. Now, why would you put that in the movie? Well, because it's actually in the Scriptures, but why is it in the Scriptures? And this leads to something quite interesting. We read Psalm 9 earlier. And I know now what all of you are thinking. Ah, that makes sense of verses 2 and 3. Notice in verse 3, When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. 
Those words, I am He, those are the words of God. You read Isaiah, you read Exodus, you read various portions of the Old Testament, and God will say, and God alone, I am He. Three times we read here, I am He, I am He, I am He. And verse 4 of Psalm 9, For you have maintained my just cause. If you look at the context of Psalm 9, it's very interesting. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. When these criminals, and they are criminals, come to arrest the Lord of glory, and all He says is, I am He, and they fall back, you are meant to understand that this is not just merely Jesus identifying Himself as we might in a certain situation. This is Christ speaking divine language. And when He does, they fall back at the very words of our Savior. And yet you see the hardness of man's heart. You would think that just by speaking those words and them falling back, they might think to themselves, you know what? I'm not so sure this is a good idea. But they continue in their hardness and unbelieving hearts. So he asked them again in verse 7, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am He. So if you seek Me, let these men go. Do not involve My disciples. Not only because there's no need to, but Jesus must do this alone. He understands His mission is one where He cannot receive any help. He is the Helper helping the helpless. And so leave these men alone. Let them go. Now, naturally, there is Simon Peter, who is never far from our Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel accounts. And it is interesting that Simon Peter is, to use an American phrase, uh, carrying. Uh, Carrying a knife. Uh, You wonder what was going on in Simon Peter's mind. I don't know how common this was, but he wakes up in the morning, gets dressed, and goes, ah, where's my sword? Uh, Puts his sword on. He's with the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who can, you know, defeat enemies by by the words of his mouth. And yet, Peter has a sword. And what does Peter do with the sword? Well, he draws it and strikes the high priest's servant and cuts off his right ear. Again, Notice the attention to detail. In fact, we even get his name, Malchus. He cuts off his ear. Now this is quite interesting because John sometimes gives us details that the synoptics don't give us, and sometimes the synoptics give us details that John doesn't give us. Now we know what happens if you look at Luke chapter 22, verse 50. We are told that when Peter and he is not actually named by Luke, which is interesting, when one person struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear, Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. At this point, Peter has the opposite view of Christ than Christ has of himself. Peter wants to preserve Christ by force, Christ says, I must drink the cup that the Father has given me. And what is the cup that the Father has given him? It is the cup that we read of in Jeremiah and other places. It is the cup of judgment, the cup of wrath. I must drink this cup that the Father 
has given to me. So in light of that, the band of soldiers you see in verse 12, and their captain and officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They then lead him to Annas, and he is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who is the high priest. And Caiaphas has advised the Jews in relation to Jesus Christ that it would be better expedient that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation of the Jewish people should perish because the Romans are suspecting a possible overthrow by Jewish revolutionaries led by Jesus Christ. So, better that Jesus is killed than that the whole nation should perish. Now, this leads to the trial, and I'll get to more details on the trial in future weeks, but it is interesting to me that the Jewish people at this point in time had all sorts of laws about even things like trials. And they were willing to break all of these laws in order to have Jesus killed. So, for example, the Sanhedrin was not supposed to meet at night, and yet they did. The death penalty could not actually be declared on the day of the trial, and yet it was. In fact, Annas and Caiaphas, if you go back to John chapter 11, they should have disqualified themselves because of their prejudice, and so they do not do that. Then you see that false evidence and false witnesses are used, and they accused Jesus of blasphemy, which is incorrect. And then Jesus was also exposed to blows during the trial, which was also illegal by their own laws. In fact, the Sanhedrin could not discuss a capital case that is involving death on the eve of the Sabbath, and yet they did. In other words, as much as they valued their laws, and believe me, Orthodox Jewish people today value their laws, They will not get in certain elevators. They will not press buttons. They will not do this, that, or the other. They were willing to break all of these sacred laws if it meant putting to death the Son of God. Now, what ends up happening then to Christ's disciples? Well, notice in verse 15, Simon Peter follows Jesus. So did another disciple. And I take this to be John. It's just the way in which he writes. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Again, this is eyewitness testimony. But Peter stood outside at the door. On the one hand, it's like John is bringing attention to Peter by naming him over and over again. But on the other hand, there are certain details where I think John is being kind to Peter in how he gives a very summary fashion Um, denial of what Peter said. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, notice Peter stands outside the door, so the other disciple goes in and he speaks to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now, the servant girl, second time she's been mentioned, is at the door. Not 500 Roman officers, but a servant girl is at the door and she said, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter said for the first time, I am not. Peter, who had cast out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter, who had seen miracles performed by Christ. Peter, who when he fixed his eyes upon Jesus, was able to walk on water. Peter, who had prayed with the Lord. Peter, who had said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living 
God. Peter, who had been told, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Yes, that Peter is the same Peter who said, I do not know this man. In fact, you'll remember if you go to Matthew's Gospel, it's in chapter 26, I think verse 35, and uh, you have this discourse where uh, Jesus has said that He's going to be handed over to the chief priests, He's going to be crucified, and on the third day raised again from the dead. And Peter says with utmost confidence, even if I have to die with you, even if I have to die with you, I will never ever disown you. I've been having this debate with my my dear daughter. I love her to death. We're like best friends. You know, even her friends go, Katie, your best friend is your dad. And I know that's not easy for a young girl to hear. But it warms the cockles of my heart to know that. uh, And um, it's fine. You know, even Katie's friends, these two guys from school, they came over to hang out with me on Friday night, and Katie was nowhere to be found. I spent an hour with two of Katie's friends just hanging out, shooting the breeze, and talking about all sorts. It was wonderful. So uh, there's no malice involved anywhere, any shape. But she she has this idea about going away camping with her friends uh, before going away to Germany. And, you know, I don't like how far it is. I'll be gone that weekend. Barb's busy, and it's a long way. And I don't know if I like camping with young people. You know, I remember what I used to do when I went camping. And you know, what does a responsible young lady say? Dad, you know me. You know that I don't do this. You know, Dad, come on, you know me. And I said, you know what? It's not your lucky day, Katie. Because Peter also had a lot of things to say about his faith and about his godliness. And I didn't arrange it this way, but Peter said, I will never, ever do anything to deny you. And here we are. So young people, I'm sorry. You go to your parents and say, but you know me, Dad. You know me, Mom. You don't even know yourself. I've just ruined the plans of dozens, haven't I? (laughs) Husbands aren't even going to be allowed to go to the grocery store. (laughs) Now in Matthew, after that great declaration in verse 35, you get to verse 70, and instead of what John writes, I am not... Matthew gives us the actual long form. I don't know what you are talking about. Then two verses later, I don't know the man. Then the third time calls down curses. That is to call God's wrath upon yourself if you are not telling the truth. And he swore to them, I do not know the man. It's incredible. Now, Luke tells us that our Lord looked at Peter after this had happened, and Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken to him, before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. 
we always have to be careful about how strong our faith apparently is when the reality may not be the case of what we think. It's the same as though uh, we have great faith in God's sovereignty, but then God's sovereignty unfolds in such a way whereby it causes us some discomfort with His providential dealings, and all of a sudden we start to doubt His goodness, we start to doubt His love, we start to doubt His wisdom. On a nice sunny day where all is going well, God is sovereign. I might even get on Facebook and throw a quote out there about God's sovereignty. I might go to a Bible study with Arminians and talk about God's sovereignty. I might love God's sovereignty. Until God's sovereignty causes you to fall on your knees and have to say, do I really believe that God is sovereign? And Peter was full of boasting about the greatness of his faith and about the courage that he possessed. And it was a servant girl who caused him to say, I don't know who you are talking about. Now I see how quickly the time goes. Let me just give you one point of reflection or application You'll see that John has a delightful sense of irony in his Gospels. The other Gospel writers do it sometimes too. Remember when Jesus is hanging on the cross and they said, Oh well, He saved others, but He cannot save Himself. That's one of the most delightful theological truths one has ever uttered. They didn't know it, but it was. And here you have the high priest who is advising the Jews in verse 14 that it would be good, it would be very good if one man died for the people. The narrative of Judas and our Lord Jesus Christ is already foreshadowed by David and his trusted counselor Ahithophel. You see this in 2 Samuel, Psalm 41 and other places. And in 2 Samuel chapter 17, Ahithophel is giving advice to Absalom. Absalom, as you know, is David's son. And this is Ahithophel who was David's trusted counselor speaking to Absalom who was David's son. Let me choose 12,000 men. And I will arise and pursue David, and it doesn't say your father, but we could say pursue David your father tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee, just like all of the disciples fled. I will strike down only the king. And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. It's incredible. It is better that one man should die than that the whole nation should perish. It is better that the king should die. Now this is incredible because remember, in Matthew's Gospel, verse 74, Peter calls down curses, God's wrath upon himself if he was not telling the truth. Did God's wrath fall upon Peter after he had lied? 
And the answer is no. Peter asked God to curse him, to send his wrath upon him if he was not speaking the truth. He ends up lying three times and God's wrath does not fall upon him. How do you explain that? How do you explain that except that the cup that Jesus knew that he had to drink was the cup of God's wrath that would fall down upon him instead of Peter? That's why Peter didn't die after he had denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ took the wrath of God upon Himself. Just as Peter said, I do not know the man, Jesus goes to the cross saying, I know that man, Peter, and I'm dying for that man, Peter. That's the Gospel. That's the Gospel. It's that you, in any given moment, would deny Jesus Christ, not just three times, but a thousand times. And Jesus would do the opposite towards you. Affirm you a thousand times if needed to the Father. I do not know the man versus I know the man. Peter denies who Jesus is to him in order to avoid suffering. Jesus affirms who He is in order to undergo suffering. Why don't we get judged so harshly and immediately when we commit a sin? Why is there such a relaxation of God's wrath such that instead of actually judging us, sometimes the opposite happens and He blesses us? It's right here in Peter. And it's the same for each and every one of us. I do not know Jesus Christ turns into Jesus Christ rectifying that by saying, I know Him. And it's wonderful how John brings out Peter's denial, but he also brings out his restoration. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Was Peter unaware that he had denied the Lord Jesus Christ? Of course he was not unaware. But he says, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. And ultimately, you should be able to sit here and affirm two things. That yes, by nature and in your weakest moments, you would deny Jesus Christ over and over and over again. But also by the grace of God, you can say at the same time, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. This is the Gospel. Instead of God's wrath falling upon us, it falls upon the One who refuses to not know us. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank You for our Lord Jesus Christ who proclaims our name to the Father when we at times would not proclaim the name of Christ to a weak and pathetic world that can do nothing to us. We ask that You would help us to be bold. And if we have failed to remember that Christ restores His people and accepts even our imperfect love so that we can say, You know that we love You. We pray that our love may be from a pure heart and a sincere confession. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Before we sing our final hymn, we will have the offering.